wasn't a blessing today to see such a full worship team. Beautiful, beautiful. Thank you for serving us. Well, most of you know I'm a storyteller. This morning I don't have any stories. <laughs> but I feel the Lord would have me bring a very sober word. This past week I received an email query from a lady who's a principal of a Christian school in another state. And she was wrestling with the implications of Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. And here's what she wrote. Hi, Jim. This is, and then her name. I have a question for you. What does perfect mean in Matthew 5, 48? Does this mean that we can achieve perfection on this earth? That we can be perfect? Because it tells us to be perfect. Thanks for any insight that you can give. Well, this lady was asking a very important question, wasn't she? And I did spend some time answering her question. And it seemed the Lord didn't seem, the Lord really began to speak to me that indeed that question he wanted us to deal with this morning from the pulpit. Be ye therefore perfect as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Now that's a very important question this lady was asking because Jesus said, John fourteen fifteen, if you love me you will keep my commandments. John 14, 21, He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. John 15, 10, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Those are very clear words, aren't they? Clearly they say, if we love Jesus, we will keep His commandments. And here in Matthew 5:48, we have a very clear command. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Well, think about what that means. If we love Jesus, we will keep His commandments. And that is a very clear commandment of Jesus Christ. Be perfect. Now, for those of us in this room who are aware of our failures, and I'm sure that includes all of us, that's a very sobering thing to think about, isn't it? If we love Jesus, according to this commandment, we'll be perfect. And that's a very sobering command. So this morning... Let's ask ourselves a question, is it possible to become perfect in this life? Does God expect us to attain that perfection? And if so, what does that perfection look like? Now the doctrine of sinless perfection is a doctrine that is presented quite forcefully in some denominations. Especially those that grew out of the teachings of Wesley, the Nazarene Church, some Pentecostal churches, the uh, groups that came out of the Keswick movement, teach that we should achieve 
sinless perfection. Most of these would teach that after we become Christians, we experience a second work of grace. Some call it the baptism of the Holy Spirit, some something else. But after salvation, we have a second work of grace that so anoints us that for the rest of our lives, we will always choose to do the will of God. And that teaches sinless perfection. Now, it's interesting, although all of these movements came from the teachings of John Wesley, John Wesley very clearly in his document on sinless perfection said, I never use that expression because it might be misunderstood. But there are those that, that advocate that. Now, there are a number of scriptures that seem to urge, even command us to be blameless and perfect. Let me read some of them. 1 Peter 1, 15 to 16. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Paul, writing to Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 6, beginning with verse 14, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. What partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? What agreement has a temple of God with idols? We are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk with them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord God Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. 1 Corinthians 15.34 Become sober-minded as you ought. And stop sinning, for some have no knowledge of God, and I speak to your shame. 1 John 3, 6, No one who abides in him sins, and no one who sins has seen him or knows him. And Paul praying for the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 5, 23, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, May your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then this stern warning in Hebrews chapter 10 beginning with verse 26. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for us, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. And so we could go on and on and on and read scripture after scripture that contains very strong commands to us to be blameless, to be holy, to be perfect. And the strongest of these seems to be Matthew 5, 48. Be ye therefore perfect as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. So this morning as we ponder 
these questions, let's begin by looking at Matthew 5, 48. Two very strong or rather interesting things spring forth as we, as we look at this verse. And first is the Greek structure of the command. Now usually in the Greek language when you are giving a command or an exhortation, the Greek verb is in the imperative mood. But in this case it isn't. It is in the future indicative. Assess they. And this is rare. It occurs often in Matthew, almost nowhere else in the, in the New Testament, except when quoting one of the commands of the Old Testament. But in the opinion of some lexicographers, when this form is used, it is used to emphasize the fact that not only is there a command, but there is an exhortation to obey the command. It's as if a man said to his son, mow the lawn, you will mow the lawn. (laughs) That's the sense in which this command is given if the lexicographers are correct and it does seem that indeed they are. And so Jesus was being very intense when he said, be ye therefore perfect as your Father who is in heaven is perfect. The second thing that stands out is the meaning of the word that we render as perfect. It is the word teleos. And the underlying idea of this word is be complete. To not be an unfinished product. To have nothing unfinished in you. But to be complete. To be a finished product. To be imperfect is to be incomplete. God is perfect. God is complete. There is nothing lacking in God. And those two things stand out in an interesting way in this particular command. Now as you read the Sermon on the Mount, there are several strains of teaching that flow through it. And one of these is the contrast between the practices and teachings of the religious leaders of Jesus' day, contrasted with the practices and teachings that characterize the kingdom of God. If you look at Matthew chapter 5, you notice six times Jesus said, You have heard, but I say. Verses 21 and 22, 27 and 28, 31 and 32, 33 and 34, 38 and 39, 43 and 44. You have heard, but I say. And so Jesus was contrasting the teaching of the religious leaders of his day with the teaching and practices that are appropriate for the kingdom of God. The religious leaders in Jesus' day were very persnickety about keeping all of the liturgical and all of the ceremonial commands of the law of Moses. Yet, they were not perfect. They were not complete because they were not keeping the weightier matters that involved the heart. Jesus on one occasion addressing to a group of disciples and Pharisees were in their midst and Jesus wrote as uh, said as quoted in Matthew 23, 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! 
you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. And here's the kicker. These are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. You see, Jesus also said to the crowd, Therefore, all that they tell you to do, speaking of the Pharisees, do and observe, but don't do according to their deeds, because they say and do not do them. So notice, as our Lord was addressing the practice of the religious leaders, especially the Pharisees, they were very, very careful to be precise and make no mistake in keeping all of the liturgical and ceremonial law. But they were not perfect. They were not complete because they did not have the heart for the people. They did not have mercy. They did not have justice. And to be complete, we must have both. Now, it's interesting. We're living in a day, it seems, in which it's flipped. And today, people say, well, to be a Christian is to be kind and to be loving and so on and so on. And yet, the liturgic and, liturgical and ceremonial aspects of our faith are viewed by many as no more than rules and unimportant. But Jesus said, tithing is as important as kindness, and both must be present in our lives. So, the command in Matthew 5.48 is do not be incomplete. Do not be incomplete. Don't ignore the ceremonial and liturgical commands, but don't be satisfied with external religion. The heart, everything must be in the heart or else it is wasted and we are incomplete. Now, the Christian life, is not a casual life. It is an intentional life. And we seek intentionally to be holy. We intentionally seek to be perfect. We seek to be like our Heavenly Father. We desire to be perfect. And we're commanded to be perfect and to be holy. So we have to ask again, well... The command is there, but is it possible? To be perfect means to completely fulfill the potential. If you have a pint bottle, 16 ounces, you fill it with water, and it's complete. 16 ounces did it. If you have a gallon jug, which will hold 120 ounces, and you put 16 ounces in it, it's incomplete. It has a greater potential than a pint bottle. So what about our potential? Is the perfection that Jesus commanded in Matthew 5.48 something that is potential for us in this life? Is it possible? Since it was commanded, I have to conclude it is possible, potentially, but never achieved by anybody other than Jesus Christ who has ever walked upon the earth. There are so many scriptures 
that assume that sinless perfection is never attained in this life. Let's look at some of them. We start off with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. That will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Then what comes next? Forgive us our debtors, our trespasses, our, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and so on. Luke, quoting it, says sin, not debt or trespasses. And then Jesus said, as he concluded that prayer, he said, For if you forgive others their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Now notice to whom Jesus was teaching this prayer. He wasn't teaching worldly people. He was teaching disciples. And the assumption in that prayer is that everyone who prays it has moral debt. Everyone who prays it has transgressions for which we need to say, Oh God, forgive me for my transgressions. Why would Jesus tell us to pray that <laughs> if sinless perfection was something that every disciple was supposed to achieve? Romans chapter 7, and this is rather lengthy, but we'll read this portion beginning with verse 18. Now, and if you would like to have a solid exegesis of this passage, you might attend Piccolo House Church. They're going through Romans. They've already completed this, so now every member of the house church can explain this passage. But let me read it. <laughs> For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. Now this is Paul. For the good that I want, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not want. If I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I'm no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I fend in the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man but I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Wretched band that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand I myself serve with my mind I'm serving the law of God, but on the other, my flesh, the law of sin. Now, often in his writings, Paul spoke of his life before he met Christ. And he always used past tense. For instance, in Ephesians 2, we all used to formerly, he said. But notice, in this passage, he uses the present tense. I am. I do, as if he were describing his life even after he was walking with Jesus. Statements in James, James chapter 3, verse 2 and verse 8. We all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle a whole body as well, but no one can tame the tongue. 
It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. That's a rather universal statement, is that we all stumble, and if, you have a, if you're a perfect man, the way in which you display that is by your tongue, but nobody can do that, it says. James 5.16, Confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another so that you may be healed, and so on and so on. And 1 John 1, verse 8, If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar. His word is not in us. Now, on and on we could go, quoting verse after verse after verse that recognizes that even though we may have the potential to be perfect, else why did God command it? But realistically, no one other than the Lord Jesus Christ has ever attained that while walking upon the earth. All of us, regardless of the passionate desire of our heart to serve God, all of us remain imperfect. Yet we're strongly commanded to be perfect. <laughs> so what can we do? Paul comes to our rescue. Philippians chapter 3 beginning with verse 12. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore, as many as present tense are perfect, have this attitude anything you have a different attitude God will reveal that also to you however let us keep living up by that same standard to which we have attained notice Paul said I've not yet become perfect but he said all of us who are perfect think the way I'm thinking now think about who this Paul is here's a man who to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 4.16 said therefore I exhort you be imitators of me. 1 Corinthians 11.1 1, Be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. Philippians 3.17 Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Paul was saying, if you want to know how to live for Jesus, follow me. Follow my example, look at me, and do it that way. I would never have the hubris to say that to anybody. <laughs> if you want to know how to be a disciple of Jesus, just look at me and I'll show you how. Would you, anybody here dare say that? Paul did. <laughs> and yet, he said, I have not already become perfect. I am not perfect. I am on the journey and he said, everyone who is perfect is on the journey. Isn't that interesting? In essence, he's saying in God's eyes, if you are sincerely on the journey, you are perfect. 
even though as yet you have not fully made that goal your own. Isn't that a comforting thought to think about? The fact that we're on the journey in God's eyes, we are viewed as perfect. Now, it's important, brothers and sisters, that we cannot be casual about our failures. Sometimes we look at this and we look at that in our lives. We say, well, you know, I'm just human. And I use a Greek term, baloney. We must never be casual about sin in our lives. Sin separates us from God. Sin will send us to hell. And it's because of our sin that Jesus Christ went to the cross. We must never sit down and say, well, I'm just human. Paul wrote, it's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost of all. And if we are honest with ourselves, I think all of us at times feel like Paul. There's nobody in the world who's a worse sinner than I am, but Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners and I, today, the way I feel about myself, am foremost of all. Thank God Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. So what are we to do? Well, we have to begin with the same answer that Peter gave on the day of Pentecost when the people cried out, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said, Repent and be baptized out of every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the Holy Spirit for the promises unto you and to your children and as many as afar off whomever the Lord our God should call. That's the place we start. We repent. And the Greek word there is metanoeo, which means change your mind. Change your mind about who Jesus is. Change your mind about sin. Change your mind about what life is all about and so on. And then symbolically we bury that old person, the watery grave of Christian baptism and come out of the baptistry to walk in a new life. No longer, as Paul said, slaves to sin, but after that, slaves to righteousness. And the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit is within us to assist us, to convict us, to encourage us in our walk. We heed Hebrews 10, 25, and 27, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of truth, we read this earlier, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment, and so on and so on. Notice he said, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together and encourage one another, for if we go on sinning willfully. The implication is there is always 
the temptation to commit willful sin. The devil is constantly lurking at the door. And why do we come together on Sunday? Not because we're getting points with heaven, not because this is some religious law, but we come together to encourage one another in our walk with Jesus. You know, one of the most important things that happens here on Sunday morning is the break we take before the offering. And we speak to one another, we express love, and we encourage each other. Men's meeting yesterday, gathering together, and there was encouragement there as we met together in the name of Jesus. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another so much the more as you see the day approaching. We come together to encourage each other. And then the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper was given of the Lord Jesus Christ to be a means of grace whereby we serve Him. Sunday after Sunday, we stop, and just for a few moments at least, we look back over the seven days that have gone by since last Sunday, and we think, is there any place, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, or even Sunday afternoon, that the words of my mouth didn't please God, my attitude was wrong. And as we examine ourselves, and the Holy Spirit makes us aware of those, O oh God, we confess it. And then we partake of the Lord's Supper and say, I know that heaven is mine because Jesus went to the cross for me and the sin I have now just confessed is gone because as John wrote, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And Sunday after Sunday, rhythm that is there in our lives to enable us to start the next seven days with the dust of sin gone and we start over in another week. And we joyfully accept God's work as he is continually working to sanctify us. Hebrews chapter 12 talks of that at length and says if you're not being disciplined by God, then you're not one of his sons. That's an interesting thought, isn't it? I think of Judges chapter 3. And that's an interesting way that chapter begins because it says, now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them that have not experienced war. Now when the Israelites went into the promised land, God said, get rid of all these nations. Some were not gotten rid of, and it appears it was because of failure of Joshua and some of the troops, but Judges 3 says God allowed those to remain as a future test of Israel because the future generations had never known war, they didn't know how to fight, and these were there to test them. And then as they were surrounded by these nations, they began to intermarry with the nations and they began to lose their righteousness. Can you live in the midst of an unholy neighborhood and stay true? Sometimes as we're surrounded by all kinds of sin and evil, Oh, God, can't all this just go away? Well, if we, if we look at the analogy of Judges 3, God says no. 
because I want you to learn how to fight the devil as he tries to overcome you. And God continually works to sanctify us through these things as we live and as we serve him. So how do we conclude? (laughs) Well, it's a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost of all. (laughs) And we look at him as the model And we pray that by the Holy Spirit more and more every day, every hour, every year we can look at ourselves and realize we are conforming more and more and more to the image of Jesus. But we'll never get there. (laughs) But by His grace, His arms are open and the day will come when He'll say to every one of us, come home. And no longer... Well, Paul's words describe us pressing on toward that high calling because it will be ours and we will know perfection. Thank you, Father, for your grace that extends to us in our fallen state. We're thankful that you so love the world that you gave Jesus Christ that we might be redeemed. We're thankful for the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. We're thankful for the mirror that you stick up in front of us, often causing us to see ourselves. We're also thankful that Satan, who is the accuser of the brethren, time and again has his mouth stopped by your grace and your Holy Spirit. Lord, we pray that as individuals and as a church, we might be able to perfect holiness in the fear of God. And the world, when they see us, might truly see Jesus Christ, not because of who we are, but because of who you are within us. Through Jesus, amen.